Well, welcome back, listeners, to this podcast channel in which we are going through an apologetics study through verses and ideas, concepts, thoughts that just do not seem to jive with the fullness of the text. And today is no different. And we're going to hit one verse today that is going to go pretty in depth. Um, and so I think it's going to take a little bit longer to do this one, so I'm going to limit it down to this. Uh, but I hope you guys had a great Christmas, um, and I hope you are starting off your new year in a way that is honoring and befitting being a child of God. And so we're going to get right into this one. Uh, James 2.24, this might be one that a lot of people are familiar with, but maybe don't understand. Um, and I think that that's... that's um, understandable, considering that this one seems to fly in the face of what many teachings would like to try to postulate for the church today. And we're going to go through this one, we're going to kind of run down the context of it, but we're also going to go into Romans and find out why some people would seem to propagate a teaching that um, doesn't seem to fit in the fullness of the text. And so we're going to break it down. James 2.24. Let me just read what this one states. And then we're going to go back into Romans. And we're going to look at what this one says. And I would encourage you very much so to hang on for this one. There might be some concepts in which you're like, yeah, I kind of already knew that. There might be some things where you're like, I didn't know that. But I'm not sure that I agree with that. Hang on until the very end of this one. Because I have about probably 15 to 20 passages that we're going to go through to try to give a fuller context. Which is what apologetics is. And so if you're first time with us, this is kind of how this apologetics series is going. We are taking a scripture or a passage and we're running it through the gamut of scripture. To be able to see, does it pass the litmus test of um, being fully intact with the idea of truth. So, here's what James 2.24 says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you've got teachings that are out there today of people who take this passage um, and they run off in an extreme type idea in which they believe that their works are what are going to end up saving them in the end. And so it actually doesn't really incorporate much faith. Once you come into this by faith, then you have to perform all these works in order to stay in the faith. And if you mess up, then all of a sudden you're not saved anymore until you repent. And then, and then you've got to um, you know, confess and repent and now you're back to being saved. And then you've got to do the right works and not do the wrong ones. And if you mess up, then you're not saved again. And so goes a hopeless reality for a person who's supposed to live with the fullness of hope. And so that idea would be wrong and heretical. But so is the concept and the notion of ignoring what this passage says simply because you don't want to believe it. We're going to go back to Romans 3.28. We're going to see what this says. And on the surface, it's a direct contradiction. When you analyze James 2.24, let me just tell you real quick. I've heard several teachings on this one, primarily by the more so of the OSAS, the once saved, always saved um, way of school of thought. Uh, the Baptist, if you will, just throw that in there um, to kind of what they're all kind of comprised together. I've heard several teachings on it. Let me just say they all kind of fall flat. They don't really suffice for what this passage is actually talking about. Uh, one of those is, is that the concept of being justified is before men, not before God. And I think that falls really flat um, on this concept because even in 2 Timothy 2.15 it says, Do your best to present yourself as one approved before God. So it's not a concept of just being approved before men. 
This is a justification between heaven and earth, between a vessel of earth unto the glory of heaven. And this is a concept of being in an approved state before God. And you see a person is not just done so by faith, but by works. So what is it, where do these, where do these um, teachers and preachers of the word get this concept from? Romans 3.28, here's what he says. Um, let me just start in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, it's very interesting that he doesn't just say works. He says very specifically works of the law. What is contextual to this passage is the concept of the law of Moses. You see, Paul is trying to tell these Roman Christians that a person cannot get saved by performing the works of the law of Moses to such a degree or to such a level of perfection to where they would be able to come in. That they could come into this salvation through Jesus Christ in which we then would stand through his grace that he gives to us. Um, A person cannot keep Torah well enough. It is impossible. You see, a person who is unregenerate as an unbeliever cannot keep the law well enough in order to be worthy of salvation, of coming into Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so God has given access into this grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And so you come from an unregenerated state unto a regenerated state, from a state of being dead to being alive. The state of not being forgiven to a state of having your past sins forgiven. And it is only through faith, not through the works of the law of Moses. I cannot stress that enough because here's the reality. There are works that we have to do to get saved. And you might be listening to this thinking that's heresy. It is by grace alone through faith alone. And that is what my pastors told me. That's what my daddies told me. Let me just tell you, that's not what scripture tells you. Because here's the reality. Jesus himself says that to believe is a work. You go back in John. Jesus says, the people ask him, what work must we be doing to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, this is the work you need to be doing, that you believe. So even faith in and of itself is a work. It also says in Romans chapter 10 that we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So you see both an act of speaking or confessing, but also the posture of the heart of humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. So you see three distinct things that actually have to be done in order for you even to get saved. It's not just by faith alone. That's just a cliche statement that you've heard that sounds great, but it's not the reality when it's taken in its proper scope. So there are works you actually have to do to get saved. It's just not the works of Torah. You cannot do enough good works and refrain from enough bad works to be worthy of salvation because even if you've sinned one time, you are unworthy and all have sinned. So therefore, the only way to come in is through faith and submission and confession and humility. And as Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, if you want to come after him, you must deny yourself daily, pick up that cross and follow him. Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you see a fourth work that even has to be done. You have to die to yourself. You see, these are all acts in which the person has to do in order to come into salvation. So even that alone 
we would have to be able to look at and say there are works that are required for salvation. It's just not works of the law of Moses. The other one you're going to find is in Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the therefore is there, and I would encourage you to go back and read what it's there for, going back into Romans chapter 4, the tail end of it, when it talks about that righteousness will be counted to us, in which notice that it talks about Paul referencing himself as if this righteousness has not yet been given to him. You read in 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised us from the, or raised the, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, past tense, since we have been justified, we have been come, we have come into this faith or into this salvation through faith, not through works of the law. But here's the distinction between James chapter 2 and Romans 3 and Romans 5. Romans 3 and 5 is talking about our justification unto salvation. James chapter 2 is talking about our justification unto glorification. Those are two different things on opposite ends of the timeline. When you look at Romans chapter 3, it is talking about a person who is not a believer, who is not brought into being an adopted child of, the, of God. A person who is dead in their trespasses and sin, as Ephesians 2 would talk about. And who has now been brought into a justified state before God by having their past sins removed because of their yielding faith and, and submissive faith and confession in Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. You see, now they have been brought into a justified state through faith. But what James 2 is talking about is that at the end of the road, when you stand before him, you find that it was through your works after your salvation experience of being brought into him that preserved your faith until the end. That'll make sense in just a little bit. Hang with me as we go through all of James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 through 24. And hopefully this is going to make sense to you because I believe this is a premise we can't get wrong in the church today and yet we are. And people are resting their laurels on a, uh, a, a confession in which they did at one time. And some pastor told them, you know what, now you're signed, sealed, delivered. And it doesn't matter what you do anymore. And if you really got saved, well then you'll just keep working. And if you didn't really get saved, then you won't. And it takes the responsibility of the believer out of the equation. And I believe that the responsibility of the believer... And the promises of God must find their harmony together when they're being worked out together. Not one-sided. So let's look at this. James chapter 2, 14 through 24. He says, what good, is it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Meaning in the end. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking a daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now here's what's interesting about this word for dead. A lot of people translate this one to say that it's dead, meaning that it doesn't exist. But that's not what the word means here. You see, in the Greek, I believe there's four, maybe even five different words that are used. For the word dead or death. You have necros, you have apothenesco, you have thanatos, and I don't remember what the other two are off the top of my head, maybe there's just one. But they all mean slightly different things. And while they can overlap, 
They mean different things. And the word that's used here is the word nekros. And I'm going to give you an example in Romans chapter 3. I'm at Romans. Um, in Revelation chapter 3 that brings this same word up. But I'm going to show you something of what it actually means. Let me just define it real quick. Necros, it means lifeless, inanimate, destitute of a devotion due to sins and trespasses or inactive. It differs from what apothenesco means. It means to perish or eternal death subject to eternal misery and hell. You see, the one denotes more of an inactivity due to sin. It's more of something that is not walking. The way I look at it is it's kind of like the lifeless waters. They're stagnant. They're not moving. They're not doing anything. Do they exist? Yes, they exist. But they're lifeless. They're inanimate due to sin for the human. He says in Revelation chapter 3, and he's writing to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Again, this is very interesting because one could look at this and say, see, they have a reputation of being saved, but they're actually not. But that's not what this word means. Listen to what he goes on to say and want to prove it to you. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, what does that mean? This person is spiritually dead. They have nothing. And yet he says, wake up and strengthen what remains. So something is there. Strengthen it. Don't just come to life, but strengthen it. Because it's about to apothenesco. It is about to perish. It is about to have an eternal death. It is about to have, be subject to eternal misery in hell. So as he says in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It's a very fascinating concept because what Jesus is telling his church in Sardis is, is he says, you have an inactivity in your faith due to sin. You are not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're stagnant. You're inactive. Yes, you do have something that has been given to you that you have received. Yes, you are saved. Yes, you have a deposit that has been given to you. And you need to wake up and start doing what you're supposed to or else there will be a death that comes upon you that will not be woken up from. And it's the same word that's used here. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is inactive. You can say all you want to that you believe in the promises of God, but if you're not out there actually moving towards those promises, if you're not actually living by faith, and trusting in his provision in those times when you don't have the financial means and you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. And you're not out there trusting him for that. And instead, you're working more and forsaking the fellowship more. Instead, you're going out there and you're trying to get a second job instead of trying to care for the church and leaving those things in God's hand. I'm not saying we don't have a job to do. What I am saying is, is do we trust him or are we trying to bring about our own effort or our own provision by our own effort? It's the concept of Laodicea in church as well. 
And so we talked about that in 17, going on in 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. And I want you to pay very, very close attention to what he says here. Because these, James is writing countless amount of times in these five chapters. He's written countless amount of times of stating, My brothers, my beloved. And he says here, You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now I think that's a fascinating concept because we have got to understand that it is not the works in and of themselves that save us or will in and of themselves bring us unto glorification. It is the works that are supplemented to the faith that keeps our faith strong. And this is what he's talking about. Faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. It's the Greek word teleio. It's a verb that's used to mean bring to completion, to perfect, and to accomplish. It's meaning that the faith that you have, when you supplement works to it, just like a muscle, when you actually exercise that, you increase And you make it stronger. When you don't, you get weaker. And the works that you supplement to your faith keeps your faith strong. So that in the end, it's what it's supposed to be. A faith in which God looks upon the servant and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm going to dissect that even just a little bit more towards the end. Because that's an entirely opposite stance from any kind of a Calvinistic viewpoint. For God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, is completely un-Calvinistic. And you might not even know what Calvinism is. And that's okay. Um, In my estimation, I don't think you're missing a whole lot. Because I believe it to be a heretical belief. And again, I don't say that demeaning or um, ridiculing or trying to demean some, some type of belief other than the sense that I don't believe that it fits in the fullness of the text. Because I believe that it's honing in on certain things and excluding others instead of trying to take it all at its fullness, figuring out what it says in the text. But going on from that, I digress. He says... Um, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, this is not referencing coming into salvation, but within it at the end unto glorification. Let's look at what he says in Romans chapter 8 verse 17. Let me flip back to that real quick. And I want you guys to listen very carefully to what Paul says and the fact that he includes himself in this one. I think a lot of people miss this one. It says this in verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now check this out of what he says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, what is Paul meaning by this, by including himself in this? He doesn't say this, um, provided we suffer with him to prove that we were saved. 
He doesn't say that. Paul, including himself in this, says that we are children of God and we will be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When is that? When do we become heirs with Christ? In the end. At the glorification. He says we will be honored and glorified and heirs with God through Christ. Provided we suffer with him, meaning now in this life, in our salvation, in order that in the end we will be glorified with him. So he says, you don't get to get in without going through the proving ground of this life. Not meaning to prove that your salvation was real, but the proving in which as 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 8 says, when it says um, that your faith and your love are increasing and you're suffering all these things for the kingdom of God, it says this is to prove you worthy of the kingdom of Christ for which you are suffering. It's to prove you worthy. You see, there's a big difference between that. You see, once we come into Christ, He gives us access to grace that empowers us to be able to live by divine influence the life that we need to live for His glory. He gives us everything that we need. 2 Corinthians 9.8 When you understand that grace is not unmerited favor, but that it's divine influence for you to live the life that God's called you to live through Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 9.8 makes all the sense in the world. And to him who is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says it clearly. You see, when we come into Christ, we are given access to everything we need for the life of godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 And he says... You have no excuse. So you're going through these trials and these tribulations not to prove your faith was legit in the beginning, but to prove you worthy of Christ in the end. That's why he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So he says, provided we suffer with him in this life in order that in the next we would be glorified with him. Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Matthew 10.22, it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Notice what Jesus says, it's not the one who endures to the end that was saved, who will be. Future tense. James 2.22, as I talked about earlier, faith was completed, was brought to completion, was perfected, was accomplished. It became what it was always intended to be in the heart of the individual who believes. So when you believe in the beginning, you weren't just supposed to remain in that condition. You were supposed to grow. You're supposed to bring that faith into fruition. That's what the parable of the talents is all about. Why people miss this, I don't get it. I don't know how people miss this. They teach through the parable of the talents and somehow come away with this concept of thinking we don't have to do anything. It's not to prove the genuineness of your faith. It's to preserve it. That is what works are supplemented to the faith to do. Works in and of themselves do not bring you into. Works of the law are not going to bring you into salvation and even the works of Christ are not going to bring you unto glorification apart from faith. But when coupled with your faith they strengthen and mature that faith unto what it was always intended to be. 
perfect. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 8-11, through 11, in which he says a very similar concept that we've been looking at even in the book of Romans. You're going to find this concept <clears throat> nestled throughout the pages that are there. Philippians 3 says this in 8-11. through 11, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. If you notice what he's talking about in all things, go ahead and read before what he says about his life as a Jew. And he says, and I suffered the loss of all of those things in order that I may gain Christ. He's talking past tense in the time of his salvation. And there's a very key to break down in this. Paul is referencing that the moment in which he was saved, he had to count everything as rubbish. He had to die to himself and die to his wants and die to his interests and die to the things that he desired in his flesh to achieve and accomplish in this life, which is what Galatians 5.24 is all about. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with his desires and passions. You no longer live for your flesh and your passions in the day you come into Christ. It is about living for his. And those who have done that are the ones who belong to him. But that doesn't mean... That you don't have a choice moving forward every single day. Which is what Luke 9.23 is about. But notice he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is what he's talking about. The moment he got saved, the time that he got saved, it was not because of his own righteousness of from, that came from the law of Moses, but the works that he did through it. It was by faith. And the, Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And a submission to him as the Lord of his life. He was brought into this salvation in which he stands. And he says, not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And now listen, because he's about to switch timelines. He's about to go from what was to what is and what will be. Three distinct times on the timeline of which Paul is identifying here in these short, probably eight verses. And he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Sound familiar to Romans eight seventeen? Becoming like him in his death. This is what is. <clears throat> and he's about to say what will be. That by any means possible, you could just insert works right there. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's he talking about? Glorification. Now Paul says, in order to be saved, I had to let go of everything. And when I did, I pressed forward to know him, to be known by him. To share in his sufferings. To do everything that needed to be done in this lifetime. So that in the end, I may share in the glorification or the resurrection from the dead. Past, present, future. And did you notice that Paul says that he had a job to do through any means possible. He may attain the resurrection from the dead. And listen to what he says. Not that I've already obtained this. Or that I'm already perfect. He says, I know what is possible through Jesus Christ. And I haven't, achieved, I haven't attained it yet. I know that there's the glorification in the end waiting for me. And I have the promise of it. But I haven't obtained it yet. I've got work to do. I've got a job that I have to see to fruition and see it to completion. 
before I'm going to see that promise come to its fulfillment. Paul understood this. Why Christian pastors and teachers and preachers today don't get this, I have no clue other than either they don't want to or they're clinging to what they've always thought. They don't want to open up and entertain an idea that maybe they were wrong. Paul says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is only talking about himself here. It's not proving his salvation, it's preserving his salvation in the end. He says, I press on to make sure that that what has been promised to me in Christ Jesus in the end will be mine. Because I have the promise of it. But I have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, you notice the works that are attached to that in Hebrews 10.36? Notice what he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. What does it imply there? It implies there's a doing that has to be accomplished by the servant in order to achieve the reward. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What works did he do? The good works that were given to us in Christ Jesus. And if we do those works until the end, we will find our glorification or the resurrection from the dead in Christ Jesus. The promise that has been given to us will actually come to fruition because we supplemented works to our faith, not as a, not as a proving of our salvation, but of the preserving of it. And we will stand before Him on that day when He opens up the Lamb's book of life and we will stand justified before Him. This is what he says in Philippians 2, um, 12 through 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, so much to unpack in this one. But I want you to take note of, he says, with fear and trembling. Why doesn't he just say with love and joy? Work out your salvation that you've received in Christ Jesus with love and joy. With hope. No, he says fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, you need to understand who's in you. And it should cause you to have fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Go read 2 Corinthians, I believe it's 6, 14 through 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Why do we have fear? Because 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul tells us that all of us who are believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing the fear of the Lord, then we persuade others. What is Paul stating? He says, I know I have to stand before Christ one day to give an account for everything I do in my body, whether good or evil. And I know the fear of God and what that's going to be. And I don't want to have an unclean conscience on that day. So I make sure that I do everything I can from here until then to have a clear conscience. That's going to come into play when we get in 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 through 8, that I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. Notice what, who did it all? Paul. I. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. 
through the grace that God supplied to him to do it, Paul chose to every day endure through the trials of this life, to set aside the wants of his flesh and to choose to walk by the Spirit. Paul says, I did these things and because of that, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Something Paul had yet to attain as we already saw in Philippians chapter 3. Don't, don't buy into this misnomer that when God sees us, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. We have been given access to it, but that doesn't mean we have it. That's why he says in Galatians 5.5 5, that he waits eagerly for the hope of righteousness. He has yet to attain it. It's been something that's a temporary garment given to us that we can have access to clothe ourselves in and come before the throne of grace. But it's not something that's become eternal until we endure to the end. And he says, henceforth there is later for me the crown of righteousness, which God will award to me, but not only to me, but also all those who have loved his appearing. You look at 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself before God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Notice it says that you have to be approved. You know what the word for justified actually means when you boil down? A state of being approved. And you know what he's saying in 2 Timothy 2.15? Do your best to present yourself as what? One approved before God. This is only Paul talking to Timothy. It's not like him and, and little Timmy are trying to prove the genuineness of their faith. It's only these two. And he says, hey, Timmy, do your best to make sure that you're going to stand before God as one approved. You could even substitute justified for it because that's basically what justified means. It's two different Greek words that are used there. But the definition of those two Greek words basically mean the same thing. Go look it up. It's a state of being approved. Philippians 1, nine, Again, staying in the book of Philippians for this. It's starting in verse 9 through 11. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, check out the so that, you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Did you catch that? The negative inference is, is that if you don't approve what is excellent, you might not be pure and blameless before Him on that day. You will give an account. You might not be approved before Him on that day. You see, you got approved before Him on the day of your salvation because you yielded your faith to Him. But on the day of your glorification, you might not be standing approved before Him. 2 Peter 1, 5-11 says it like this. Let me turn to it real quick. Sorry for the, uh, uh, the pages flipping in the... Microphone says, for this reason, talking about because you are guarded by God's power through your faith and that his divine power has given everything that you need to live a life of godliness because of that. For this very reason, make every effort, do your best to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing Notice, not just relegating your life to, yeah, I believe, but I'm not really going to put any kind of works to this faith to strengthen this faith. And notice what he says. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. I want you to be mindful of who he's writing to this. To those who have, been, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice who he's talking to. These are people who have been given access into the righteousness of God through the person of Jesus Christ and have obtained a faith of equal standing. And then he says this to them. 
Make sure that you supplement to that faith of equal standing to the apostles works. And if you do that, here's what he says. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Notice the past tense. He's not saying that this person actually wasn't really saved. It's just that they've forgotten their place. They've forgotten who they were before Christ. If a person is not willing to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, that person has forgotten who they were before they came to know Jesus Christ. And he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Please don't get all Calvinistic on this one because those two words don't mean exactly what you think it was. Nor does the word confirm. The word confirm is babeos, and it means to make stable or firm. It's not a proving term of proving your calling and your election was actually true. It's making the fact that you have been called, that you have been given access to be part of the choicest beloved of God in the church. To make sure that that remains stable. To make sure that that remains firm. Unwavering. You don't lose sight of it. Not that you prove the genuinity of it, but that you actually resolve it to have a firm foundation within it. He says, to confirm your calling election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Fall fall from where? You see, the concept that Peter now, not Paul, but Peter is trying to address here is you have been brought in into this salvation But you've got a job to do to preserve your glorification. This is why it goes on. For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has jumped timelines from what was to what is to what will be. You see the same exact thing. Even going on at the very end, the last thing that Peter tries to tell these Christians... In verse 17, he starts it and he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that people are going to try to twist the scriptures unto their own destruction. People are going to take the things that Paul writes and twist it and pervert it unto their own destruction. Knowing this beforehand, beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own, check this out, stability. What did he just say? Confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. Not to prove that you really were called and elected. That's not what those two words really mean. But to make it stable in your life. Don't forget your beginnings and have a resolve to what your calling really is in Christ. Have a firm foundation of that in your life. And that's why it says in 18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So you see, faith, not works of the law, get us into this salvation, into this grace by which we stand. But coupling works to that saving faith keeps us in it unto our glorification. And that is what James 2 is referencing. You see, a person is not justified in the end simply by their faith, but by their works. The works will preserve your faith until the end so that you might stand before him justified And complete, lacking in nothing 
unto your glorification with Him. So works don't save. They only strengthen what does. And that is our faith. So as I said at the end of this parable of the talents, where we oftentimes see that God's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is the whole concept of that. Flies in the face of Calvinism because God's not patting himself on the back saying, I sealed you to the end and I kept you. I did my part. You didn't have to do anything. I did it all. So well done, God. God's not saying that. God says, you have a job to do. And I will give you, I will, as Oswald Chambers says, I will tax the remotest star to give you everything that you need to do what I've asked you to do. The fault will not be mine. You have a job to do. And if we do that job and to the end by preserving that faith through the works that we supplement to it, one day you and I will hear God say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Y'all be blessed.